We have been uh, feasting as a church in the last few weeks uh, uh, in our particular series entitled Drenched. Uh, We're looking at the fact that to be a New Testament church means you have to have an understanding of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And the fact that, in fact, if we are to be, one of our passions as a church is to be gospel drenched. And in fact, to be gospel drenched doesn't just mean that we understand about Jesus. It also means we understand about the person of the Holy Spirit. The beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, it says at least two things about Jesus. It says, number one, he will be the Lamb of the world, which means he will justify us. At the the cross, he provides justification for those, all of us, who put our trust in him. But then secondly, it also says he is the one who will baptise in the Holy Spirit. So we're looking over these summer months at the wonderful truth that to be a church that is truly like the church you see in the Bible, that we need to be drenched by Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. And today we come to, I think, quite a precious few verses. I mean, all the, all the verses of the Bible are utterly precious, if you know what I mean. But uh, what, these verses for me are just uh, are very precious because they describe uh, a picture of the early church with incredible, vivid characteristics. Let's just read together Acts, 40, Acts 2, 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favour with all the people. And the Lord added to their, to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now that to me, I don't know whether you agree, sounds like a fairly exciting community. Anyone here agree? Hand in the air if you agree. So we see here extraordinary commitment to one another, extraordinary commitment to prayer, extraordinary commitment and passion to hearing God's word, extraordinary commitment to giving money away, extraordinary signs and wonders being done all the time. This is by anyone's definition or reckoning, an extraordinary community that we've just read about, that historically really occurred. And the question is, is, well, well, how do we get there then? (laughs) Because if we've all just raised our hands, I want that. I would love to be part of a community that has that kind of expression to it. The million-dollar question is, Lord, how do we get to there? How do we become more and more like that? And I think one of the most overlooked aspects or ingredients that we need to understand the Bible tells us that we need to have, if we are to see those ingredients evermore in the church, are found in verse 43. We can often overlook this. And or, or at the bottom of your Bible, it may well say, as it says in mine, literally in the Greek, fear came upon every soul. Think about that for a moment. I believe that one of the most overlooked necessities and vital ingredients that every church needs to have is this. And we're going to learn today in our few moments together that if we want to see the fruit, all the other stuff I said, all the exciting stuff, we need to have the fear. Do do you see that? Well, you can't get to the fruit without the fear. 
And I believe all across the Western world particularly, a lot of people want to have the fruit without the fear. We want to see all the kind of woo stuff without understanding that right at the heart of who they were as a community, it says these words that are inspired by God and awe or fear came upon every soul. Now, even as I've said that and the mood has changed, as you can sense it, we need help today because all of us jump to often the wrong conclusion when we read that. We think, oh, wait a minute. We've been singing all these happy songs and I thought this whole thing about Jesus was going to be good news. But you're saying, Tom, we should be fearful in order to get the church that God wants. I don't understand. That seems like a strange equation. So today we're going to spend a few moments looking at three questions which will help us to understand accurately why I've just said what I've just said. The first of them is this. We can look at what is the fear of the Lord and implicit within that what the fear of the Lord isn't. I would look at the form of the fear. We're then going to look at what it produces, why it's so important, i.e. the fruit of the fear. And then, a little alliteration there, and then thirdly, we're going to look at, well, okay, if we've understood what it is and therefore what it produces, we need to therefore say, how do we grow in this? What is the fuel for the fear? Thank you. You'll remember it. I know it's cheesy, but you will remember it. And that's my aim above everything, above even cheese. So I want to pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that you are here. And I really want to ask, Lord, for your extraordinary help. We recognise, Lord, that no man or woman speaking your words, Lord God, uh, without your help can do anything. They are just words. But I humbly ask today for a life-changing message. I pray that as we walk out of those doors in a few moments, every soul will be different. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, then, we have to understand what is the form. What, is, what, what do we actually mean here by uh, awe or fear? Um, I was relieved I had a conversation yesterday with Derek Reynolds. Many of you will know Derek, who's coming here, who's, a, who's been a, a pastor for many years. And I just said, Derek, what do, what's the Greek word here? Thinking that I knew the answer to this. And Derek and another very intelligent person said, well, it's the word phobos or phobos in Greek, which literally is where we get the word phobia from. I thought it was a totally different word, so thank you, Lord, for protecting me. But it means... The word here is phobos, which in the Greek means fear. <laughs> so it, it, it literally means what it says here, awe or fear, where we get the word phobia from. In the uh, Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, it says this, it's an emotion that combines, listen to this, dread, veneration, and wonder. Dread, veneration, and wonder. That is inspired by authority or by the sacred, or the sublime. I love that combination of words, dread, veneration, or wonder. We see uh, in the Harper's Bible Dictionary, it describes the fear of the Lord, listen to this, is the awe that a person ought to have before God. The fear of the Lord is represented by the fear and trembling with which Paul says to the Philippians to work out their salvation in Philippians 2.12. And it has some undertone of judgment. So it's here, this sense of the appropriate emotion that we ought to have when we come face to God. So we have to ask ourselves, well, Tom, why, ought, why should we have this emotion? Why should we be a people where we actually experience awe and fear of the Lord as a daily ingredient in our life? And I think when you really boil it down, there's two core, very simple and yet utterly profound aspects and reasons 
to what are the what is the fear of the Lord that if we get our head round will help us to understand why we should be a people who fear the Lord. First thing of this is that the Lord is holy. What do I mean by the word holy? Well, in his brilliant book, which I would massively recommend, The Joy of Fearing God by Jerry Bridges, he puts it like this. He says this. The Hebrew word for holy is kadosh, which literally means cut off or separate. So when it's used of God, the word expresses the idea of separateness or otherness. God is wholly other than all his creation, from angels, from men, and especially from sinful man. He is absolutely distinct from all his creatures and is infinitely exalted above them in incomprehensible glory and majesty. A.W. Pink says this. It says, it describes God. Listen to this. It's beautiful. God is solitary in his majesty. He is unique in his excellence. He is peerless in his perfections. I love that expression. He is unique. He is solitary. God's, the word holy, you see, we don't, you don't ever read in the Bible that it says God is wise, 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 or God is powerful, powerful, powerful. But we do read on two occasions that it says in scriptures when we glimpse into heaven, all of heaven is actually crying this, holy, holy, holy. What's that saying? This is saying above every other attribute of God, there is an umbrella attribute. There is an umbrella term. That is his otherness. That is his separateness. It means this, is that when we think about the attributes of God that we kind of understand, we think of his justice that we have some sense of. But our sense of justice is nothing compared with his holy justice. We think of creativity, and we all of us have some level of creativity because we're made in the image of the creator. But his creativity is a holy creativity. We think of love which we all have some sense of what that is, but his love is a holy love. We think of his purity, and it's a holy purity. Do you see that in every aspect of who God is, every aspect of who he is, you have to understand it's a holy, it's a holy justice, it's a holy creativity, it's a holy perfection. God, in in, in his very essence, ultimately is profoundly other to us. So when we think, for example, turning your Bibles to Isaiah, Isaiah 40. Let me give you one example of God's otherness. We think about his power. Now, all of us have some understanding of power. If you're like me, not a lot. But if you're like Gary, who was up here a minute ago, if you ever shook the hand of Gary, you'll know he understands power. He's a strong man. So we all understand the word of the idea of power to some degree. But when we think about God's power, it is a holy power. Let's read a few verses of, of Isaiah 40. He's saying this about God. He says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Who has marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? This is verse 14. And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Implication is no one. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. 
Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. That's just about four or five verses describing the God of the Bible. He is, his power is a holy power. Do you know the nearest sun, that's nearest star to earth after the sun, do you know how far away it is? 26 trillion miles away. So you have the earth, then you have the sun. The next nearest star, secular astrologers tell us, are, is 26 trillion miles away. And all the astrophysicists tell us that there are approximately a hundred billion stars in this one galaxy. And there are literally hundreds of billions <coughs> of galaxies. We, we can't compute that. We can't even comprehend it. We think, when we think about power, it says here in verse 12... He has marked off the heavens with a span. Hold your hand up. How, how, how big, big is your span, do you think? Eight inches? Seven inches? Ten centimetres, if you're young, a metric? It's not very big. Do, do you understand? This is literally said, the God of the Bible, trying to help us to understand his otherness and his power, he marks off the, the whole of the heavens that I've just described, the universe, with a span of his hand. He is other. He is profoundly holy. But the second massive ingredient we have to understand, to understand why we should have awe, why we should have fear of the Lord is this. He is not just holy and other. (coughs) He is here. He is profoundly near. You see, if we just have one without the other, we never ultimately... Learn to walk in the fear of the Lord. And you see, this is why this series on looking at the drenching of the Holy Spirit is so appropriate that we understand what the fear of the Lord is, the awe that we should, as a Christian people, be understanding and walking into. Think about even that term, Holy Spirit. Holy, i.e. other, all the things I've just said, spirit, by implication, profoundly near. In John 14, Jesus says, when the Spirit comes, he will dwell with you, and get this, in you. This is, this is holy ground we're talking about. When we think about the coming of the Holy Spirit, drenching the early church and drenching us, even in those two words that describe the third person of the Trinity, it is this paradox of his holiness, of his otherness, 
of his transcendence, who sustains everything by the word of his power. And yet his profound closeness, and he's in this very room here today. That is at the heart of what the fear of the Lord is. It is a dual understanding that he is utterly holy. Yes, we are made in his image, but he is other. We are created beings. He is the creator. We, he is holy, and yet also he is here. That should make us feel healthily uncomfortable, to a degree, when we think about that. You see, when you look in the Bible from start to finish, when you see people who come into a place of understanding these two things, this is the absolute unanimous response of every single one of them. If you were to just go through the Bible and to look at every time a human actually comes into the revealed awareness of the holiness of God and the nearness, the nearness of him, every single time the response is the same. It is face down. It is that there is a response of awe and fear. You see, Genesis 28, we studied Jacob just a few months ago. We saw he had a dream and God reveals himself to him in it. And we see Jacob, it says, he was full, full of fear, full of awe. We see in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 6, the prophet, through the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes on him and he glimpses heaven. And what's his response? This is a hugely godly man. His response is face down on his face. And we see right at the book, end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, we see the Apostle John caught up, drenched in the Holy Spirit, and he sees heaven, and he sees the person of Jesus, and he falls on his face as though dead. If we had time, we would read it. So what I'm saying is here is that this is when we read this Acts 2.43, and it says, and awe came upon every soul, this is what it's getting at. It's getting at the understanding that on this community, they had a deep, profound sense that God was holy, and yet he was here. But I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Because the fascinating thing is that when you look in those sections, for example, in the one I mentioned about Jacob, Genesis, Jacob 28, when Jacob, a sinful man, comes into the presence of God, do you know what God speaks to him? He speaks nothing but promises. Nothing but positive promises. It's amazing. When Isaiah and when John come into the presence, the sheer presence of God, there is no finger wagging from God. God doesn't go, now now you're here, I want to say, oh Jeff Mail, how incredibly sinful you are. Now this is huge, because we often think, and all of us by the way, not just Jeff. <laughs> this is not ultimately what's happening here. It is not that they are so fearful because God is actively trying to communicate, I am holy and you are wicked and awful. That's not what I'm saying. It is, it is a different thing. Again, we read here uh, by Jerry Bridges. This is a brilliant comment he makes on this in his book. He says, it was not the consciousness of his sin with Jacob, but the consciousness, listen to this, of his creaturehood in the presence of deity that created his sense of awe. Now listen to this. In the words of Rudolf Otto, Jacob's response, I love this, was the emotion of a creature submerged and overwhelmed by its own nothingness in contrast to that which is supreme above all creatures. 
You see, when we catch a glimpse of both the holiness of God and that we are just created beings, loved, if you're a Christian, forgiven, but nevertheless before a holy God who is profoundly here, it's not primarily the fact that, oh, I'm so sinful. It's just he is the creator. And it shows us that we are just created beings. That we are here simply because he is sustaining our heart for this moment right now. And there will come a moment where for everyone here, he will stop it. And then we will see him face to face. It's profound. But of course, when you have that glimpse, when this starts to break into your life, you can't help but see yourself differently. I was in the woods a few weeks ago and... And, uh, and many of us will know that Dave Campbell, a beloved long-term member of this church, a couple of months ago went to be, be with the Lord. And about six o'clock I was with Penny and Dave and we were just with him. And I cycled off home and about, I think about an hour or two later I got a call from Chris just saying, Dave, has, he's gone. He's gone to be with the Lord. And when I thought to myself, an hour or two earlier, he was just here. And now he's face to face with the creator of the universe. Do you know, I didn't, I have to be honest, that, that wasn't a comfortable thing. I knew, I knew Dave was giving his life to God, he absolutely loved God. But the sheer truth, you see, we often think about heaven as a nice place, and we kind of forget that it's, it's all about the person of God. We're coming face to face with our maker. And, and as I was in the woods, and I was saying, Lord, Lord, I can sense that you're, you're, you're teaching me something through this. You're teaching me about the fear of the Lord, the right sense of awe that I'm just. A, I have. I mentally often think, oh, I'm going to have got another sixty years. Of course, I have. And God was saying, no, you don't know that, Tom. Every breath is a gift. Every breath is a gift. And as this, I start to pray, Lord, show me, show me what John saw in Revelation. And I felt God say to me, Do you really want to see that? Do you actually? Because when you read Revelation and you see, G, you see John seeing the Son of Man, it is uncomfortable. It is, it's only because Jesus goes up to him and says, fear not. And he puts his hand on his shoulder. There's something in us that has to recapture the sense of, yes, God is approachable, but he is also profound and other. And it's this combination of his holiness and the hereness that brings it towards us in a place that actually is real I on my honeymoon we went to North Scotland and I have a fascination with dams for some reason and we were in the highlands of Scotland and we were driving along and I saw this dam from a distance I was like wow Joe, let's check out the dam she's like right just married this man and uh, I was like I don't know how we're going to get to see this dam from a distance I could see it and it was amazing and we parked the car and we started to walk down this path, and we couldn't see the dam. It was out of view. We got lower and lower and lower. And then when we got to the bottom of the valley, we just came around the corner, and there was the dam. It was unpleasant feeling. It was overwhelming. The thought that there were trillions of gallons of water a few feet away from me. This towering thing that was holding back an ocean of water I just felt so small I just felt so small I just had a healthy understanding that I'm just a little person I'm not God even though I often think I am we all do we unconsciously do we think I'm in control of my life and I just thought oh my 
And it's something of that nature that the fear of the Lord is the sense by God breaks into our life and he shows us we are just. We're loved, but he is other. He is holy. And it's this combination that he is holy and he is profoundly powerful, profoundly just, profoundly moral. He is holy and yet he is also here. The dam from a distance, it was just a nice dam. But when it was like this, everything changed. And I would want to say this, and I really mean this. I don't think perhaps there's a more important ingredient that we need to recapture, that we need to have in our lives individually and corporately. I don't think there's a more important thing that we need to seek God for, actually, if we are going to become the community that we see in the Bible. And you might say, Tom, that you're overstating that. Surely we need to grow in lots of things, you know, in patience and love and generosity and you know, all this, I would agree. But do you know what the Bible says? Turn with me to, to Psalm 34. Turn with me if you've got a Bible. This is a massive verse that we need to see here. Verse 9. Words of King David. He says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Listen to this. For those who fear him have no lack. Or in the NRV it says, lack no good thing. Do you see what he's saying there? This is a massive statement. If you fear God, if you have a sense of awe of God, a sense of the thing I've been talking about, everything else comes into place. You will have no lack. All the things that we want as Christians, all the things that every human wants in this, in this world, happiness, joy, <laughs> a sense of trust, all the other things, those things only come when the fear of the Lord, like a cornerstone, is first embedded in our soul. If we, try, if we try to just shortcut that, we will try and get those things and they will never fully come. That's what he's saying. He says, oh, fear the Lord, oh, you saints, because those who fear the Lord in an appropriate way, it's not a negative thing, it's a life-giving thing. It will actually bring the fullness. It will bring everything you've always wanted. And we can think, really? Really? Well, let me show you four obvious fruits that come out of a fear of the Lord. The first of them is, is this, we become humble. Who here would like to become more humble? I am so arrogant in my heart at times. I am just shocked at it when I catch a glimpse of it. I forget that I'm a created being, walking by grace, every moment sustained by the creator universe. And arrogance rears up in me. And what we see is, is that a sense of the fear of the Lord, it's strange, it seems to somehow humble people. When they catch a glimpse of the things I've said. The guy I mentioned, John, in the book of Revelation. One thing we know about John, amongst other things, in Mark chapter 10, there is an extraordinary situation where Jesus, God on earth, has just predicted that he's going to suffer and die for the sins of the world. It's quite a big moment. He's just proclaimed that. Do you know what John and James are talking about in that atmosphere? This is unbelievable. They're talking about Jesus. Um, yeah, thanks for you know, saying all that stuff about you dying and stuff. But um, when, when the kingdom comes, can I sit at your left hand and can we, can we sit at your left and your right hand? Can we be in the places of importance? This is in the Bible. This man, John, was arrogant. <laughs> he was like me and like us. He was. At times, to one or two, we all are. He was thinking about his own position when God was predicting his own position. Suffering for the world. Now what do we then see when he catches a glimpse of the holiness of God and the fact that God is here in Revelation? Every ounce of arrogance 
drains away. He is flat on his face. He's not saying, hey, Jesus, do you remember that conversation we had? Is it all right if I get this chair here right next to you? Great, nice, comfy, brilliant. No, no. John is on his face. On his face. Jesus, Jesus wants us to live our lives in our hearts with something of that in us. He doesn't want us to have to wait until we meet him to become humbled. He wants us now, as the Holy Spirit comes upon us to become a people who walk with a sense of, oh Lord, you are wonderful and you are other. And any good gift you give me is breathtaking. But your, your presence alone is the greatest gift. Humility is the first fruit that comes from it. We become servants rather than consumers. The way that we shift from making everything about us and our own consuming stuff that we want and church being about us consuming rather than us coming to serve, the only robust way is when we catch a glimpse of the fear of the Lord. When we catch a glimpse of that God left heaven, came to earth as a servant, washed our feet, gave his life hanging on a body, uh, his body on a, on a cross to take away the sin of the world and to rise again in order to serve us by allowing us to be forgiven. When we walk, that is our God who is holy and he is here. It frees us from a consumer heart, becoming humble servants. Secondly, the fruit of it is obedience. Now we get oh, obedience, you know, nice. Jesus made a massive deal about obedience. What do I mean obedience? What I mean by this is, first of all, obedience in terms of our direction in life. There's a, uh, a, a pastor in America called Francis Chan, who is a man who embodies walking in the fear of the Lord. Very uh, inspiring guy. Leads a massive church in California, or did. And about two years ago, he was reading the book of Colossians. In the beginning of Colossians, it says words to the effect of, Paul, an apostle, by the will of God. And he felt himself challenge himself, say, do you care that much about the will of God for your life? Are you someone, Francis, that seeks to know what God's will is for you? Are you someone that actually would so pursue the will of God and you would obey the will of God, even if it meant a life of real difficulty and suffering? And he knew his answer really was no. That actually, although he kind of wanted to know the will of God for his life, he was kind of holding back. And so he went back to his huge church, very famous in America, and he said to them, I believe I am spiritually immature. I can't lead you as a people. I want you to be a people who say, like Paul, I want to know your will, Lord. I want to live for your will. He said, I can't honestly say yet that I, I want that for my life. I'm scared of that. I'm scared that it'll have to mean comforts and pleasures and things that I hold dear in this life might have to go. And so I'm just going to slightly hide. And he stepped back from leading for months in order to get before God. And then he came back with a fresh sense of devotion and sacrificial obedience to God. People were critical of him, thinking he's super spiritual. But actually, I think he was onto something. He was understanding a blind spot. But it's not just in terms of obedience, in terms of direction. It's also obedience in terms of correction, i.e. sin. You see, sin in our lives is normally attractive, isn't it? It is. We want to have a gossip, we want to get envious, we want to get bitter, we want to get angry. Normally there's, a, there's almost a strange pleasure in sin, normally. How do we become those who are obedient consistently to kill sin in our life? Well, one of the keys is when you understand that he is holy and he is here.
that when you're in that private place, tempted to sin, that we are before the searchlight of heaven. And he loves us, but he is holy, and he's here. And also, when it comes to bringing loving, humble, correction to others in the church. I was so pleased last week, Hugh was preaching on discipleship and accountability. And actually, the only way, if you're anything like me, I'm a right old people pleaser by nature. And the way that I can actually summon the courage at times with people who have invited correction to my life, uh, for, the, for me to bring correction to their lives, the, 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 way, the only way that I can actually do that and overcome the fear of man is if I have a much larger fear of God. If I'm walking in the sense of, listen, this thing I see in their life might be an attitude or a small thing, but before the holiness of God who is here, it is a big deal. And I'm going to humbly bring this to them, even if there's a certain level of rejection. Because that fear of man, that is actually something that is real, it becomes smaller and overcomable when the fear of God. The fact that every day we're giving account to God for how we've used our time. Thirdly, we become worshippers. We become worshippers. It is just inconceivable that when we catch a glimpse that the holy God of the universe is right here, or he's right with you when you're driving your cab, or you're out on the beat, or whatever God's called you to do, when you catch a glimpse that God is holy and here, it is completely inconceivable that you wouldn't become ever more a worshipper. It's the thing that, if, if we were to say, you know, the Queen has walked in here, and we're now going to sing the national anthem, you're not going to be all apathetic about it. You're going to be, God save, she's here. That's the Queen. We want to honour her. And when you catch a glimpse, God, he's so much more profound than I ever realised. He's so much more holy, and yet he's here. And above everything, the life of every Christian should be about worship of God. Whether it's with music or not, it's somewhat irrelevant. It's about everything. You turn your meal into worship of God. You turn a good book into the worship of God. You turn your loving relationship with your spouse, if you've got one, the worship of God. The smell on a summer's morning, you turn to worship of God. Everything becomes about bending up to God. I praise you, I praise you, I praise you, I praise you. Because you are holy and you are here. And you have given me breath in my lungs for this moment to worship you. Because you are the one who delights in my worship. It means our money, which is probably the thing that for most of us, if we have got a heartbeat, is the thing that secretly we still have to keep dealing with. We, as an overflow of our worship, we go, Lord, Lord, I'm not just going to give the tidbits. I'm going to give my first fruits because you're holy and you're here. And you say that if I do that and I trust you, you'll look after me. <coughs> and you're here you're right here. I said, I'm going to do it. You're not distant. You are right here and you're watching me. And it's not a kind of, it's not a, a watch that makes me crumple. It's, it's one that actually brings a strange kind of fresh perspective that I need. It breaks us through the delusion that we're in control of our life. He says, no, no, no. Do you know, God sustains everything. We often think that God, we can often be secret deists. We can think that God made the earth like we make a model or make a book. Print the book, yeah? Printed the book, and there it is. That's the world. God's made the world, and there it is. And he's just watching it statically. That's not what the Bible teaches. Think about an opera singer. Takes a lungful of air and then belts out a top E. Everyone in that, in that audience is listening. Listening to that note. Everyone is on the edge of their seat. 
You might be almost holding your breath as she sustains it. And you are aware that at any moment it will stop. And the only reason it's being sustained is because of her control and the, and the air in her lungs belting it out. That is what's happening with the universe right now. It's not a static thing. God, the only reason anything is existing now is because God is singing out a top E. Do you understand that? That changes everything. When you realise, as the psalmist says, that every mountain is God's. As one author said, we are walking on private land. He owns everything. The mountains are his. Everything that we know, feel, touch, smell, know of, everything's his. And so it changes us from hoarders into worshippers who give everything, our time, our energy, our money. It's all yours anyway, Lord. And the fear of the Lord, knowing, Lord, you're here and you're holy. I want to give it to you. And finally, fourthly, trust. We become humble, we become obedient, we become worshippers. We become those who trust. Now, this is massive. I think in all the seven years of pastoral ministry I've had, all those many years, one of the biggest issues, deep, 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 deep down, when I talk to people and I see in my own life, is do I really trust God? With those things that are happening, that that thing that he seems to be calling me to do, can he really be doing that? Is this really his path? Is this... Everything ultimately, I think, boils down to whether we trust God. And do you know what? The way that we learn to trust God is by understanding both his holiness, that he is profoundly powerful and can supply any of your needs should he desire to, but he is also profoundly here and knows everything in your life. Those two aspects of the fear of the Lord They are the things that break us out of secretly living a life where we're trying to control everything. You see, we say we trust God, but at times we can actually, I trust you, Lord, but I don't really. So I spend my life trying to control everything. How do we know? Well, if we're always anxious, if we're always control freaks, if we're always trying to give ourselves to worry because we think if I worry about the future, then I'll somehow be controlling it, which isn't true. We can't control it anyway. If that's an ongoing aspect of our life, it's possible that actually we need to learn the fear of the Lord because as we know that he is holy and therefore all-powerful and all-sustaining and yet he's also here, it breaks us out of, wait a minute, if, if that's who God is and he's right here, what have I got to fear? What have I got to, why should I worry about these things? Because he's so amazing and awesome and transcendent and yet he's right here, which means actually, you know, what can man do to me? If he is for me, who can be against me? If he's made all these promises, actually, Lord, that's the thing that breaks control freakness in us. It's the thing. You see, you're not going to trust someone if you don't really think either he's close and he cares or he's got the power to do anything about it. If either of those two things are deficient in our thinking of God, we won't really trust him. We'll either think he's a nice guy who would love to do stuff if he only had the power, or we think he's got the power but he's really distant and doesn't care. But if we think that God is profoundly powerful and able to supply all that we need, but he's also here and really cares and is intimate and involved, those two things come together in the fear of the Lord and we go, actually, Lord, I can trust you. And you free me. And do you know what that leads to? One of the mega themes of the New Testament, joy. Joy. You think, really? (laughs) Look at the title of the book, The Joy. 
of the fear of God. This isn't me saying a message to try and depress us. No, no, no. This is the path. The, the, you know, the Bible is full of saying the kingdom of God is different to how we think the world should be. The way actually that we enter into things that God wants for us is so often the difference to the way the world tells us. And what this is saying, actually, the way that we enter into the joy that God has for us. Why are we joyful? Well, we're joyful because we've been humbled. Because we're obedient, because we're worshippers, because God's breaking us out of a control freak thing and he's giving us the trust of him. And guess what? That means that we're full of joy. (coughs) It means that every day suddenly is a day where we can sink into the present. Oh, how I long in my life to sink into the present. Do you know what I mean? So often I'm just like, every day is flying past and there's no sinking into the present. You go, God, how good it is. That you are with me. How good it is that you are holy and that you're different. If you were just a God that was in my image and I'd made up some caricature, that would be so depressing. But you are so other and I'm going to spend eternity getting to know you. And yet you're here right now. So the million dollar question is, well Tom, if that's the fruit, I want that. Anyone here want some aspects of that? We want it. So how do we grow in it? Because this is the issue. I think we can secretly think, well Tom... You've described Jacob, you've described Isaiah, you've described John. These extraordinary experiences where they came face to face with the living God. If that happened to me, I'm sure I'd have the fear of the Lord. I'm sure I'd be in awe. And we can almost think passive. We can go, well, God, I'm ready. And if you happen to grace me with your extreme presence and revelation, I will be therefore awe and fearful in a good way. But actually, that can leave us passive and almost saying, Lord, it's up to you. And that is not what the Bible teaches. Look two verses on in Psalm 34. Come, in verse 11, come, O children, listen to me. I will, read it with me, teach. Say that again, one, two, three. Teach you the fear of the Lord. That's King David saying, it's the big secret in my life, but it is something that I will help to teach you. Now, this is massively encouraging. We should have a woo-hoo. Can I have a woo-hoo? That actually we can grow. That, there is a, that God can teach us and that we can be active in this. So how, how do we grow? What is the fuel to grow in the fear of the Lord? It is not rocket science. Ultimately, it is the scripture and the spirit. It is the scripture and the spirit. And we can often, if we just emphasize one or the other, we will never fully grow in the fear of the Lord. Why? I'll tell you why. <coughs> If you're someone who's more biased towards the Bible, Scripture, rather than things of the Spirit, this is what happens. You read the Bible and you get an accurate picture in your mind of who God is. You go, yes, he is holy, Tom. You're right, I can see this. But he remains distant. It remains up here. The dam remains at a distance, yeah? If you're just a person of the word only. I have some friends who I love dearly and they have got a brilliant theology. They have been walking with the Lord for many, many years. But I have to say, the things I'm talking about in terms of humility rather than arrogance, obedience rather than disobedience, real red-hot worship rather than lukewarmness, and trust rather than a control-freaky thing, I have to say, I love them dearly, but because they basically reject the things of the Spirit, it's all up here. And there isn't the fruit that I've just described. Because it's just, well, God, that's who God is. He is distant. But the other danger is, if we can just become a people of the Spirit, which is a huge thing in the evangelical world at the moment, we're just, just the Holy Spirit dude and the intimacy thing, that's brilliant. But if we don't know the character of the one who we're being intimate with, 
we can be completely inappropriate in terms of our attitude and our behaviour. Do you understand that? It's like you can be a cab driver and you don't realise that you've got Tom Cruise in the back of your cab and you're yabbering away or whatever, being completely inappropriate and you've got some famous or Barack Obama, whoever. If you don't know the character of the one you're close to, we can be completely inappropriate in how we live our lives. We're close to him, but we don't understand who he is because we've, well, we read the word a bit. And, you know, the bits about, you know, the holiness stuff and the scary stuff, oh, it's, it's metaphoric. You don't literally be fearful of God. <laughs> well, actually, we kind of are to a degree. It's meant to be in there with the intimacy. You see, I have to say, we are at a time in history where God is wanting to bring together the scripture, the word, an accurate picture of God and his holiness, and also an embracing of the spirit. We have the accurate picture of who God is, but we also have the profound, unique work of the Holy Spirit who makes it close, who makes it real. That means we don't just see a holy God from a distance and spend our whole life with sinful attitudes and never get convicted. But actually we see the holiness of God and then when you're alone with him or here today or in a cell group or whatever, the spirit in his loving, gentle but real way goes, that attitude stinks in your heart. And I want you to repent, my beloved daughter or son. I want you to do that because it will kill you. It's suicide. I want you to, do, I want you to actually learn to grow in, in, in godliness. That's what God wants. Otherwise, what happens is, if we're just a people of the Spirit without understanding the words and description of who God is, we actually aren't worshipping the real God. My friend Joel, who leads a church in Brighton, said he had some, some people who came who were very openly practising homosexuals. And, and he said, oh, they, we love to come and to worship in, in the presence of God. We love it. But then when you teach about who God is, we leave at that point. We don't really like that bit. And Joel just said, look, lovingly, who is it then that you are actually, actually worshipping? Now, this is, this is I'm, not having, I'm not trying to have a go at people who are homosexual. I'm saying this for all of us who are growing in understanding. The challenge is this. God wants us to grow in our understanding of who he is. Not to try and shape him in our image, but allow the scripture to tell us who he is and allow the spirits to bring that close so it changes us. And we go, oh, I thought you were like this and you're not. You're more awesome in that way and more transcendent in that way than I ever realised. And seeing who you are up close and personal changes me. So right now, if you're a Christian here today, you should be feeling something of attention. Anyone here feeling something of attention right now? You're thinking, hmm, this, I don't quite know how to respond. I believe that's totally biblical. You see, in Acts 9.31, it says, the church walking in, listen to this, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit multiplied. That's, that, does that make sense to you? How can you be in the fear of the Lord, all the way I've just described, and yet also the comfort of the Holy Spirit? There is a mystery, a beautiful mystery, which means we don't just go, well, God, he's just like this. He is Abba. He is our father. And I don't want us to rob that of anyone. But there is also, if he's just that, we have lost something of the transcendence of the majestic creator of the universe. So you might be here and say, Tom, I'm a non-Christian. I'm feeling that tension. But it actually feels even more, because if you're saying to me that God is holy, and he's here, 
well, wait a minute, I know I'm not holy. And if he's here, doesn't that mean I'm kind of in trouble a bit? And the scripture does say, actually, that all of us have fallen short. And if that was only the truth, that he was just holy and just here, we would all be totally judged. And the Bible doesn't pull any punches. It says we would face eternal judgment in hell. Eternal conscious punishment separated from our creator because of the the fact that we've chosen to turn our back on him, to live ourselves at the centre without him. And as a holy, perfect God, he can't ignore that. But the Bible tells us the reason that we get so excited that Jesus Christ came to this earth is that God isn't just holy and here. He is also profoundly merciful. He is profoundly, unfathomably loving. He is unlimited in his kindness and in his patience and his mercy. And what we believe as Christians is this, is that when Jesus came to earth, is that the incomprehensible became comprehensible. The inconceivable became conceivable. The one who dwells in unapproachable light approached us. Do you see? The reason that Christians get incredibly excited about the gospel is because although God is holy and here and that is to shape our life, if we just left there, we'd all be thinking, oh my goodness, we're all condemned. But when Jesus came to planet Earth, his life was perfect. And to, he, he said, you have seen me, have seen the Father. I, he was saying, I am showing you, I am showing you with your eyes who God is so that you can know this holy God. But secondly, with his death and resurrection, this is the best bit. It, the scriptures tell us that he was drenched in the world's sin so that you and I who put our faith in that moment, in that cross, that said, I'm going to trust that my sin, Tom Shaw's sin, past, present and future, was placed on him. The Bible tells us that he was drenched in, in, in God's sin, sorry, in God's judgment for my sin and your sin, so that we could be drenched in his presence and in his Holy Spirit and in his wonderful forgiveness and adoption and inclusion into God's royal family. Isn't that stupendous? That's what the gospel is. It says God is holy and he is here. But in these last days, there is still a moment of time before God ultimately comes and judges the world. There is still a moment right now. And if you don't know Jesus, in just a couple of moments, I'm going to say to you, I'm going to give you a chance as we stand, as we worship, and as we break bread. And I want to say as we break bread, we do this most weeks now, and that is good. But let's do it with reverence. Let's do it with awe. Let's do it with a sense of profound appreciation that because of Jesus' body broken for us, because of his blood shed for us, it means now that we can, as it says in Hebrews, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness. He is profoundly holy in all those ways I've said. But if you're a Christian here today, you must mingle that fear of the Lord also with an appropriate sense of, but Lord, that doesn't crush me. Ultimately, it strengthens me. Yeah, it strengthens me. And as I eat this bread, and as I drink this wine, it is a physical gift from God. The world drinks to forget. Christians drink to remember. 
We drink this precious gift in remembrance, believing that as we do this, that God helps to remind us of the profound truth that the gospel is this, is that Christ was drenched in the righteous wrath of God for all of Tom Shaw's sins and all of the sins of the world so that you and I could actually approach a holy God knowing that our whole nature has been changed. We're not just forgiven, we're now new creations. We're changed, we're transformed. 2 Corinthians tells us breathtakingly that we gave Jesus our sin and he in exchange gave us his righteousness. That when God now looks at a Christian, he sees, he doesn't just see a forgiven sinner, he sees the righteousness of his son. Do you understand? It's breathtaking. It should produce more awe in us than anything. How do we grow in the awe of God? In the awe of God? Through the gospel. We, I pray that God will show all of us those glimpses into heaven. I, believe, I would love it if God showed us that. But we have so much with the scripture showing us who God is, showing us the love of God at Calvary. Every single revival, every move of God has always had at its heart an understanding of Calvary, understanding of the gospel, understanding. We don't ever progress from the gospel. Ever. We never get beyond it to higher truth. The gospel is the greatest truth. That God became man for your sake and my sake, was drenched in the wrath of God so that you and I could be drenched in his absolute Holy Spirit and receive a spirit of adoption which says, Abba, Father, I can approach with reverent awe my Father in heaven and you want to give good gifts. I don't deserve them, but you want to give them. Hallelujah. What a God. Can we stand? Can we stand? Let's just... For a moment, let's just be still before our God who loves us. Let's just, let's just even now, right now, I believe that for some of us here today, maybe many of us, when I spoke about those fruits, those four fruits, humility rather than arrogance, when I spoke about obedience rather than just doing our own thing, when I spoke about a robust, worshipping heart rather than lukewarmness, when I spoke about trust rather than an ongoing, controlling thing, I believe that for many of us, God was just saying, I want to breathe on you today with my Holy Spirit so that you would actually be loosed into a new level of joy. Even though you might just want to close your eyes, just don't let anything distract you in these few moments. God is here. Your creator is here. You know, my job as one of the pastors of this this church, above everything, is to help prepare you to meet your maker. It's not the only thing, but it's a key thing. It's for me. It says, Paul said, I didn't shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. The scary bits, the awesome bits, as well as the comforting bits. And my heart's desire for us as a church and for myself is that when we do meet our maker, either he returns or you go to be with him, is that you know that every day you've had, you've lived with a sense of the awe of God. That the decisions you make were not based with a small perspective of God in your heart, but with a massive one. So right now, Lord, we present ourselves And we say, Lord, won't you, I pray, teach us the fear of the Lord. 
Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit. For some of you right now, actually, you do, before you break bread, which is for Christians here, you just know you need to actually just repent of maybe some things in your heart. Just right now, just do it. You don't have to, it's not about being introspective and getting all in on yourself. But if the Spirit of God has illuminated things, as you've heard about His holiness and His, and His nearness, right now, just say, Father, I just lay that down. I lay down that attempt to control everything. I lay down that tendency to just keep sinning in the same way. I lay it down in view of the fact that you are holy and that you are here. Some of you, it's Lord, I know I just walk thinking that I'm the Lord of my destiny and I'm just a little arrogant. Lord, I just I, I turn away from that today. And for some of us, it's Lord, I just know, Lord, I... I worship football or my job or my spouse or new clothes or more money or my holiday. I worship other things more than I worship you, Lord. My perspective of you, Lord, is too small. Even now, if that's you, just say, Lord, I repent. I repent of that. And I say, God, help me. I'm at your feet, God. Please don't be passive. In your hearts, say, God, the Spirit of God is just touching, I think, all of us to one degree, saying, Lord, Loving Holy Father, loving Abba, who is transcendent and yet imminent. Purify, sanctify, mature us, Lord. Don't let us be spiritual infants all the days of our life. Teach us the fear of the Lord that we would be overflowing with joy. Not joy based on a job promotion. Not joy based on a new girlfriend. Not joy but based on more money. Not joy based on a house move. Joy in the Lord. Join Him. Join the Holy One who has granted us to see Him and to live. God do it, I pray. And just, if you're here and you know you're not a Christian... I want to invite you right now to just put your hand high in the air between you and God and me and say, Lord, I want to put my trust in this God. I don't want to, I don't want to take any chances. I know I need to give my life to him. I need to get right with him. If that's you right now, I want to encourage you to be bold. But put your hand high in the air. Say, I know today I need to, I need to trust in the gospel, in Jesus' work at the cross. Right now, I, I appeal to you appeal to you I'm just going to give you another moment just to pop your hand in the air it would be great just to connect with you Lord as we come forward as Christians now to break bread and to drink wine we worship you hallelujah let's respond let's come, do feel free to come forward break bread if you feel you want to drink the wine let's, let's love our holy wonderful God